The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, Trident Room host Carl Flynn sits down with Dr. John Arquilla and Dr. Peter Denning. Uh, to all our listeners, um, I have with me Dr. Arquilla and Dr. Denning. Um, we're going to be discussing their article in the 2019, June 2019 issue of the Proceedings Magazine from the Naval Institute titled Automation Will Change Sea Power. So for all of our listeners, uh, if you have not heard of this article or read it, I would highly encourage you to pause the podcast and then head over to the Naval Institute's website. If you just search Automation Will Change Sea Power, it's the very first article that comes up. So that's what we'll be discussing. Um, it was the first prize winner of the NPS essay contest back in 2019. So um, highly recommend you read that just to give you context for the discussion. So gentlemen, um, thank you so much for joining me. You described the idea of the network as the capital ship, which I think we'll get into much more in depth later on. Um, so would you gentlemen kind of just give us the groundwork of what does that network look like? Because nowadays we're very familiar with a physical platform being the capital ship, which you outlined as the aircraft carrier today. So how do you see that going forward in the future? Well, th these are ideas that have been around for some uh, decades. Uh, back in the 1990s, uh, we were in discussions with uh, Admiral Sabrowski and the concept of network-centric naval warfare uh, came into being. Uh, his notion, and remember, he was both a fighter pilot and a computer scientist. And uh, his idea was that the Navy should be both a sensing and a shooting organization, and that uh, sensor and shooter grids would uh, be the basic uh, formula for deciding how to um, you know, imp impose uh, a naval force upon, upon others. Uh, this has evolved in uh, a number of ways, um, more recently with the notion of distributed lethality, um, platforms of various sorts distributed widely, but drawn together in their ability to bring fires simultaneously or to swarm with fire against an opponent. Uh, and uh, Chief of Naval Operations, John Richardson, uh, concluded his time as CNO uh, with a, a wonderful study in which he called for the uh, redesign of the Navy or what he called the Navy 2.0 as, as the networked Navy, uh, meaning more connectivity, not simply the wires, but the ability to share information, to manage information more swiftly, and that this would convey a kind of power that hadn't existed uh, before. Um, as we note in our article, uh, we're really agnostic about uh, platforms. You can do this networking with whatever you have, but it may be, and perhaps we'll get into this later in our discussion, it may be that a Navy with most of its hitting power in a few large things is uh, less amenable to networking than a Navy that might be comprised of a lot of smaller things, uh, mm -hmm. much as the uh, the Chinese PLA Navy has, uh, I guess they've just put their third carrier out there, uh, but they have hundreds of smaller uh, combatants that, uh, and they are practicing uh, network type uh, sensor and shooter uh, tactics all the time, as does the Iranian uh, Navy right now in their great profit exercises. So we see this notion of network navies beginning to emerge in other places. And, and again, the U US Navy has been thinking about this for a while. And I, I think in the years to come, especially with what, what Professor Denning and I see as the advantages of increasing our use of automation, 
uh, it, it seems to me that we have a, a really good opportunity to uh, maintain our uh, primacy as, as a sea power in the 21st century. John, could you uh, comment a little bit on how the networking, especially the sensor part of it, has altered the way the Ukraine war has gone, just to illustrate the point? Yeah, that's a terrific insight, Peter. In, in the Russo-Ukrainian war, uh, really, the uh, one of my, what I call my new rules of war, uh, is that uh, finding beats flanking. And uh, what, what's happened in that Ukraine war is that the uh, Russians have had a lot of difficulty uh, locating and putting fire on small mobile Ukrainian units, uh, while at the same time, the Ukrainians have benefited from tremendous amounts of sensor information, uh, some of it undoubtedly coming from friends of Ukraine from outside, but a lot of it coming right from Ukrainians on the ground who are acting as a kind of observer corps and saying the Russians are over here right now. And it's one of the reasons the Russians have been killing some of those civilians. They think they've been working as spotters for the Ukrainians. But it's enabled a very small, lightly armed force to defeat a much larger and heavier force. And it's uh, absolutely uh, this network concept, which is tied to a doctrine of swarming. Uh, when you think about that 40-mile-long Russian convoy heading toward Kiev back in February, and how it was absolutely torn apart by handfuls, little squad-sized units armed with javelin missiles, uh, but informed uh, perfectly about where and when to strike. And uh, and again and again, and indeed in the counter-offensives of the Ukrainians, we've seen this information edge allowing them to network in a way uh, that has really uh, made this what appeared to be a very unequal war, uh, turned it into one where the Russians are basically fighting for any gains that they might be able to hold on. So that's an example from land warfare. But I think the principle, as Professor Denning implies, is very much applicable at sea. The vision that Sabrowski had and the vision that Richardson was, was digging into is exactly what we see playing out there. It makes a significant advantage to have uh, the ability to see things. Oh, absolutely. Well, especially, especially when you're armed with uh, smart weapons. You know, to, to my mind, the, the Ukraine war is really a story of small units, smart weapons, and swift flowing information. And if we uh, can, can do something like that at sea, I, I think uh, we will be in a very, very good position in the decades to come, whatever challenges may arise. So the, uh, Carl, this is what we have in mind when we talk about the network as a capital ship, is the, the older idea of a single ship is now replaced with a whole network of things, large and small. Everybody's got sensors and everybody's got the ability to see and mm. see out swiftly. Especially when uh, Dr. Akula brought up the example of small units, smart weapons in Ukraine, that immediately brought back to mind, uh, I was in a light armored reconnaissance unit and <laughs> Every single time during a force-on-force -force exercise, it wasn't tanks and LAVs. It was small teams with javelins, and they were just running circles around us because they could find us and they could kill us before we could find and kill them. So yeah. very, very interesting, and I definitely agree. Obviously, I'm a Marine, not a Naval officer, but I think that concept, as you state, is going to be very, very applicable to the Navy in the future. Well, um, you're, you're in the sea services and uh, amphibious uh, warfare is uh, going to be around. We will have to go across a hostile shore at some point in the yes. in the coming decades. And, and I think this notion of 
the small units and smart weapons and swift flowing information is actually going to be what makes the continuation of amphibious warfare possible. I don't see Operation Overlord in, in the future. I see something that looks a lot more like what uh, we'll say the Japanese were doing early in 1942 in Malaya, where mm. they were operating with small teams coming off of barges. And of course, they had air superiority, so they had good reconnaissance and good close air support. Uh, something like that is probably going to be the model for the future of amphibious warfare. Yes, I, I think it's very hard to argue with that, especially with the vulnerability of large ship-to-shore connectors that we have become so reliant on. So a lot of interesting discussion there. I'm sure we'll get back into that later on. But um, the other big concept from the article was that, and in the title of the article itself, the title is not about artificial intelligence. The title is Automation Will Change Sea Power. So why the choice of automation versus artificial intelligence and is uh perhaps could we tease out why intelligent is not exactly what people think it is well you know artificial intelligence uh, started out uh, first i think the term was first used in 1956 to mean uh, machines that could behave like uh, intelligent human beings performing tasks that intelligent human beings would normally be considered the only beings that could do those tasks. So in other words, we could automate uh, intelligent activities of human beings. Mm. Okay. And at that time, a lot of the discussion tended to focus around uh, whether they could automate thinking and they could automate understanding automate other other things that are closely associated with human general intelligence. Now, over the years, this has turned out to be a very elusive goal. And the reason, one of the reasons is, is simply that nobody really agrees on what it means to be intelligent. So how do you know when a machine is intelligent? But I think a lot of people do agree on when a machine can automate a task we already know how to do but it can maybe do it better than we can because it has, it can go faster. It can, it has more kinetic power. Okay. So that one of the reasons John and I like automation is it, it puts it up in front of your face that it's possible today to automate a lot of things without answering the question of whether they're intelligent mm -hmm. and the, the lethality comes from the automation. So, for example, a, a weapon system that can choose its targets and choose when to fire is more dangerous than a weapon system that cannot do that. And that doesn't require intelligence. That could simply be, you know, some algorithms that are figuring out blips on radar to decide what target to shoot at and then pushing the button to, to shoot at it. Okay, so we can easily imagine automating that, but it's much harder to imagine simulating a smart intelligent soldier who decides which part which which target and which button to push uh, yeah i i think uh, we should also address the point that the the quest for human-like intelligence in machines uh, comes with opportunity cost uh, there are a lot of things that we can be doing with automation and focusing on um, if we use some of that effort that is uh, being placed at uh, trying to, to make machines sentient, if you will. And by the way, all sorts of people are terrified by the idea of human-like machine intelligence. So, hey, 
let's focus on automation instead and get the machines to do the things that they can do much faster, much more accurately uh, than humans can do. When I think of something like cyber defense, you know, I, and I've seen this in action, you, you can't move a human being as quickly, a human being cannot react as quickly as necessary against the types of cyber attacks that are coming in uh, every day. And so defensively, we, re we rely tremendously on automated systems uh, right, right now. They're not intelligent, like they couldn't pass a, a Turing test. So, uh, and, and this is something that Professor Dunning and I are, are kind of out in the December issue of Communications of the Association for Computing Machinery. Uh, and, uh, and in it, we uh, describe another of the big problems in computer science, which is this uh, the, the machine can't understand context. We humans spent all our lives understanding the context of situations. A machine can't do that, but it can do things better than us. And so our argument is to focus on human-machine pairing. Uh, some folks say that in the computer science field, there's a lot of effort right now going to try to make machines context aware. Well, in our view, much better off would be optimal to discover all the ways in which automation can be used. And when you think about it in naval settings, you know, I, I think about ship defense. We already have some robots like close-in weapon systems, right, that, that are there. But frankly, against things like swarms of uh, kamikaze drones or hypersonic missiles, the only thing that's going to work against them are little robot counter swarms. And at, at the Naval Postgraduate School for years, uh, we've experimented uh, up at, at our uh, controlled uh, space up at uh, Camp Roberts swarms, automated swarms to fight off attacking swarms. And we've had success at a level of uh, 50 on 50, uh, uh, being able to, to defeat uh, an attacking group at that level. And at one point, uh, the Naval Postgraduate School was the uh, held the world record in terms of counter swarm size. Uh, the Chinese, however, I think surpassed that in the last uh, year or two. They're up in the three digits now. So it, it, it just seems to me that there's this tremendous opportunity to think about focusing on how automation has comparative advantages that can pair up neatly with those contextual and other uh, analytic advantages that the human brain has. So, you know, the carbon-based intelligence and the silicon-based intelligence together, or automation together, can do things that I, I think are going to take us to a, a profoundly new space in, in the whole business of sea power. The, the, the issue about uh, in these systems, what what can these automated systems occupied some some big thinkers you know, a couple of years ago, for example, Henry Kissinger, who is now ninety nine, and Eric Schmidt, who's a former chair of the Defense Innovation Board and former CEO of Google, wrote a book together, and they expressed a lot of worry about these automated systems that could choose their targets and choose when to fire, mm -hmm. uh, easily triggering wars and easily triggering massive retaliations which could uh, destroy humanity. And they, they were calling for uh, you know, international statesmen to have treaties around this to limit the uses of automation, limit the amount by which uh, a weapon system can choose its target and choose when to fire. Somebody asked Kissinger, well, what about nuclear weapons? Aren't they more, even more devastatingly bad than automated smart weapons? 
And he said, nuclear weapons as currently constituted cannot choose targets and cannot choose when to fire. Somebody has to choose the target and somebody has to uh, tell it to fire. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're in his book, they're less dangerous than, you know, smart weapons. It, it was surprising to me in, in their book that they didn't note the strategists were very worried that a preemptive American strike would take out the central command and control uh, in, uh, in Moscow and other places. So they created a system which in the West we call the dead hand that was designed after a certain amount of time to uh, launch the, uh, the, the weapons. Uh, and so it, it strikes me as a, a, a very interesting that um, uh, Kissinger and Schmidt would, would not uh, note this. And by the way, uh, nuclear command and control has uh, all kinds of automated aspects to it, and the disruption of which could actually prevent one from uh, attacking. So there's a, a wonderful book out there, I forget the author's name, called Hacking the Bomb. And uh, it points out all of the, the various vulnerabilities. So this problem is, is out there. But as to the fear about uh, automation, there's also United Nations uh, initiative about uh, uh, international arms control uh, regarding lethal autonomous weapons systems. And it, it seems to me there are ways to thread the needle here. For example, the kind of ship defense counter swarm technology I was talking about, a human being decides when to deploy it but at the tactical level, the automation works entirely on its own. So it's not a binary choice here. You can unleash the automation by choice and, uh, and then allow the, um, the automated system to, uh, to do what it can do better than, than human beings. And there are a number of, of uh, military examples of uh, this kind of pairing that I think are important for people to think about. Uh, one of them had to do with a series of exercises at Fort Benning, uh, begun in uh, 2019, uh, in, in which uh, a human force, a small gr group of small teams, the kind you were describing uh, earlier, Carl, in, in your own exercises, were facing a much larger division-sized opponent. And uh, the only difference uh, between the two in terms of command and control was that all of the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance information for the small defending team was handled by automation. And it hoovered up all the information, sorted out what appeared to be relevant, gave timely targetable information to the small teams, and they absolutely destroyed the larger force. Man, that, yes, that very much rings true to the, the exercise that we ran into in, in Twine Palms. And that's gonna be very interesting to see how that goes um, in terms of automation running ISR. Yeah, absolutely. And at the nearby National Training Center, the Army is beginning to mm -hmm. do something similar. And back at Fort Benning, they got so excited about this. They now call this, the, they've resumed the exercises and they're calling them 10x platoons because the idea is that automated ISR will multiply the force of a platoon 10 times. So if you if you search on 10x platoon, you'll, you'll find that. And just uh, when we think about uh, tactical air power, for example, uh, one of the interesting ways to pair uh, humans and automation uh, might be to have a squadron with uh, human pilots, some drone pilots, and some aircraft that are entirely robotic, but under the eye of a squadron leader. And there was another exercise in which a, a top gun pilot went up against an AI pilot uh, in the same, you know, same aircraft simulator, and they did five dogfights. And in the course of those five dogfights, 
the automated system won every time and the human never put a single hit on the automated uh, uh, aircraft. And, and that's with existing aircraft designs. You know, if you can build an aircraft for a robot that doesn't have to worry about G-forces, oh my goodness, now you're talking about something that can turn, that can move in, in ways uh, hitherto unimagined. Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, and there's a whole line of people who are terrified of um, automation and, uh, and especially of um, true intelligence in, in machines. And as Professor Denning and I say, this idea of intelligence is, if anything, a long, long ways off. Don't let it get in the way of embracing the potential of automation. And by the way, there's a robot arms race underway right now in Russia, China, uh, elsewhere. We've got to lace up our running shoes here instead of debating about whether it's ethical to uh, to pursue this. Very valid point. There's So there's, there's a lot there um, going back all the way to... Uh when we started this uh this part of the discussion so you'd mentioned that uh one of the key things that humans are good at that machines we have still not been able to master is sensing context and so one thing that uh i'm looking at the article um in the second section there's the last paragraph uh just going to a quote uh, most intelligence attributed to these machines arises from the speed at which they operate. These machines get their speed because their operations depend solely on context-free rule sets. Humans are good at sensing context. Machines are not. Humans care about outcomes. Machines do not. So I think uh, that's kind of an interesting, a relevant thing to keep in mind as insofar as the difference between intelligence and automation. Well, this gets to a, a really old debate in artificial intelligence research is uh, early on when they started trying to build the early artificially intelligent machines. Uh, I think one of the, uh, the first categories of those was expert systems, which were software systems that were uh, trying to simulate the uh, abilities of experts in various domains. And the people who were designing them thought it was possible to capture all the rules that the experts follow by interviewing them and watching them and capture these rules and put them inside the computer along with a large database of facts that uh, experts rely on. And then the machine would be able to do the same thing the expert does without having to have an expert. So, uh, but this this was uh, was really difficult to achieve. And there was a big, a big uh, initiative within artificial intelligence, which they called the frame problem. They, they said, well, the problem is that the, these expert systems don't understand the frame of reference in which they're operating. And consequently, they don't know how to choose which rules are relevant to apply and which facts in the database are relevant to the situation, okay? So, and, and so there were many attempts to try and figure out how to decide which rules were relevant and which data were relevant. And uh, they never got anywhere with that. It's <laughs> so still an open mm. problem in artificial intelligence. And, you know, there's still a lot of people looking at that. Is it possible to uh, read the context and, and then use that to decide what's relevant and what's not relevant and then apply the automation to that. Um, 
and John and I have, are big skeptics of that. We we don't see that the uh, the way we the machines are being designed is capable of uh, reading context. We don't even understand what context is ourselves. Sort of like uh, intelligence, you know. <laughs> We just knew what intelligence was. We could simulate it, maybe. But you know, intelligence seems to include the ability to do to see some of the context. And if we can't see context, how can we be intelligent? We think that that is a uh, sort of like a rabbit hole. You can get lost chasing down. And it'd be far better just to simply say, "Look, machines can do certain things way better than humans." such as doing trillions of calculations a second and uh, automating things in, in milliseconds that humans would take seconds or longer to do. There's all sorts of things machines can do much better than humans. And why don't we just think of the machines not as potentially the same as humans, but completely different from humans. Very interesting point. And one thing uh, I'm sure we'll get to later on, um, that is one thing you talk about is human uh, machine pairing or human machine teams is the way you phrase it in the article. So I'm sure we'll get more to that um, later on. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at Trident Room Podcast Host at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash Trident Room Podcast.